0: May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So this is the second week in a row where we're faced with two rather challenging texts cut from very different cloth, very different genres. Whereas last week I focused all on the gospel, this week I'm just going to let the gospel be. because I want to speak to you about what we just heard from the book of Job. And it was Job last week that I set aside. This reading tonight, if I don't know if you heard the, the kind of the power and despair of the words with which it ended, when Job concludes God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. If only I could vanish in darkness, which is another way for Job to say that he'd be better off dead. And we just left him hanging there in his despair. This is the second of four Sundays that the lectionary has us digging around in the book of Job. If you were here last Sunday night, you will have heard the story read aloud, not preached on, but the story read aloud that presented a somewhat different picture of the character of Job. Last week we heard the backstory, in which, having lost pretty much everything, and now, quote, inflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he's taken a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat himself amongst the ashes. His wife, who had also lost pretty much everything along with him, comes out to him and says, "'Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die.'" To which Job answers, "'You speak as any foolish woman would speak.'" That's a bit of an issue line, isn't it? "'You speak as any foolish woman would speak. "'Shall we receive the good at the hand of God?' And not receive the bad? Oh, it's the proverbial patience of Job. Yet in tonight's reading, he's sounding less than patient. Today also, my complaint is bitter, he said. God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. What's happened between that backstory and the kind of text we heard tonight? Well, the story of Job is an ancient one. In fact, that backstory is considerably older than the book of Job, as we have it in our Bibles, whose anonymous author took that ancient story as the starting point for a much longer work wrestling with the problem of suffering and of evil whereas the ancient story speaks of the legendary patience of Job. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not the bad? The book as a whole actually speaks to the character's impatience, or at least to his dogged stubbornness, his willingness to lament, to voice complaint, and to wrestle with God. In the ancient story, Job's suffering is presented as the work of the Satan, who hits him with every loss imaginable to try to break his righteousness. The figure of the Satan is shown as being very much present, by the way, in the heavens, in the courts of the heavens, serving as something of a prosecuting attorney or, if you'll pardon the pun, a devil's advocate. In Hebrew, the name Satan means literally accuser or adversary. And that's the role the character plays in that backstory. Have you considered my servant Job, God says? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil. Oh, sure, the accuser replies. You bless the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. After that set-up, almost a kind of a bargain, a troubling bargain, really, between God and the accuser, in which Job is stripped of everything he has, the Satan character evaporates for the rest of the book. Forty-two chapters. He plays a role only in the first two. The ancient story then continues. Poor Job on the ash heap, scraping himself with a broken pot, trying to soothe his itch. His wife, completely unsupportive. And three friends arrive. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Three friends who sat with Job on the ground for seven days and seven nights And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. Comforters, companions, just a presence for him in the midst of his pain. And then suddenly it all shifts. The whole book shifts. The story, that ancient story to this point, has been written in prose. But now for close to 40 chapters, it moves into poetic verse. And the patient Job, who'd refused to curse God and die, hits a point where, quote, he opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, saying, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man-child is conceived. And so it begins. Job, formerly portrayed as hugely patient, curses the day on which he was born. And though he never curses God, he sure questions him. Job can make no sense of what's happened to him. He can see no moral order at work at all. And he lives with a deep fear that he might never receive an answer as to why he's living in such pain, why he's lost so much. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, he says that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There an upright person could reason with God, he says, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. And yet he continues, and this is where the sto- the tonight's reading wrapped up, if I go forward, he's not there. If I go backward, I can't see him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I can't see him there either. I cannot see him. God is absent. The three friends, however, who have been so silent for seven days and seven nights, are pretty clear that they can see God. Or at least they can see what God is doing here. So in chapter 3 of the text... Job curses the day of his birth and offers his agonizing expression of sorrow and loss, that fear that it's all meaningless. In chapter 4, one of those friends opens his mouth and offers a carefully constructed theological explanation for what's happened to Job, basically saying, A. We know that God rewards righteousness, And punishes sin. B. You, Job, are clearly suffering. C. Therefore, you must be being punished for something. D. Thus, your solution is repent. Nice, neat, ordered theological system. Job's response, though, is essentially to say, Show me. Show me where I've gone wrong, so wrong to deserve this. Show me, and I'll repent of it. But until I see what I've done, I'm lost. Well, that pattern, the back and forth between Job and his friends, the friends kind of laying out their neat theology, and Job going, I can't see it, continues chapter after chapter after chapter in this book. The friends lay out their theology of reward and punishment. Job responds with an increasingly intense, show me, show me. Then, as the biblical scholar Catherine Schiffendecker notes, at chapter 7 of the book, Job begins to make a critical shift in his speech. He makes the move from speaking only about God to speaking directly to God. It's a move from theologizing to lament. And, she observes, it's a move that Job's friends never make. They never stop theologizing and start lamenting or praying. Not that he suddenly stops arguing with his friends. He keeps that argument going the whole way through but he keeps breaking out of the language of theological argument into deep lament. Lament is prayer, not particularly polite prayer either. Yes, Job keeps speaking of his fear of God, but his deepest fear is that of silence, the silence of God. Answer me. Nothing. I know that my Redeemer lives. He'll cry midway through the book, but it's as if through clenched teeth. Now, I don't want to push us toward anything close to resolution. Not tonight, not this week. Rather, I want to offer two observations. Firstly, just take note of the willingness of Job to speak the truth of his experience in prayer, never for a minute backing down from the hardest of emotions. He laments, he despairs, he complains, he even rages. And it's God to whom he addresses all of that, all of those emotions. We need not imagine, in other words, that the posture for our own prayer necessarily be nice, Ordered and meek. Job, among other things, teaches us the reality of raw, honest, even confrontational prayer. And there's times, and lots of people here know this, I know, there's times when something has gone so terribly wrong that you're left angry at God. Job would say, then let it fly. Don't be afraid of those emotions in prayer. Secondly, just a note about those friends, those three friends, sometimes in the literature called his comforters, with their airtight theological systems. They should actually make us shudder, not because they're so offensive, but because they're doing the sort of thing that we can so easily do ourselves. They're accounting for Job's pain. They're not helping him to bear it. They're giving him answers when what he most needed was their presence. They get it right for those first seven days and seven nights. They should have kept getting it right. One of my professors in theological college once told us that whenever we went to visit with a family dealing with death, you know, either somebody is about to die or has just died, what we should do is to go into the house or into the hospital room and say to them, I'm so very, very sorry for your loss. Just that. Then sit down and shut up. Just keep company. Let them speak their pain. Let them lament their sorrow. Let their voices be the ones heard. Because it's so easy to try to say something and very often what we say is actually like lemon juice on an open cut. Even at the point when it makes sense to offer prayer with them, he, t- he told us, watch your language very, very carefully. Because in prayer even, it's so easy to say too much, to make things too tidy, to be like Job's friends. So we're going to leave Job there for this week sitting on his ash heap, unsure that there's any answer to his sorrow, to his pain, to his loss, and with his anger at God growing and his anger at his friends growing even more. You see, to rush toward a resolution, the moral of the story is, would be to fail to really hear the deep struggles of this book and this character. And the reality is, that many, many people, good, faithful people included, do live with pain and sorrow for long, long, long stretches of life. And to push for too easy a resolution, to speak too quickly where this story is going to end or how they're going to come to healing, to do that too fast is to fail to recognize the reality people live in and to risk sounding an awful lot like Job's three friends. And so for this night, I would simply ask that when we move into prayers, which will happen shortly, in some point of that time and space, if you would just remember somebody you know who walks with a long, hard burden that doesn't seem ever to end, or you look at your own self and those points in your own life where you feel some of Job's anxiety, his questions, his despair, even his anger, don't be afraid to pray them. Amen.